I had a few messages from people who, you know, a bit too much about uh, Mr. Samsudin when his name was revealed after, you know, some delay. Some people felt that uh, this was giving him too much notoriety, uh, too much recognition. And a lot of people felt that was a contrast with March 2019, when the name of the perpetrator there, uh, people were reluctant to use. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern famously said she wouldn't and suggested other people uh, didn't or shouldn't either. Um, But back then, a very different circumstance, wasn't it? Because authorities were tight-lipped about him because he looked like he was going to be facing a trial and it was pretty important that that wouldn't be jeopardised. But of course, that's not the case with uh, Mr. Samsudin. But his name was kept under wraps till... um, uh, I think 11 p.m. on the, I think on the Saturday it was suppressed by the courts. So even though the the prime minister wanted it out there and the details about him uh, released as soon as possible, that wasn't possible. But as soon as it was released, it was quite interesting. At late at night, you know, there was a rush of information. The prime minister's office and other sources really keen to get that info out into the public domain. Um, and partly, I guess, for political reasons, um, the prime minister wanted people to know in her department that. There were a lot of efforts made to deport him, and it was the law that was the problem. So that story then uh, became a a different part of it. So quite a different process here with the perpetrator of um, this particular attack. And interestingly, for people who really wanted the details, um, these days the courts on the Courts of New Zealand website produce... um, online summaries and they even put them out on Twitter and social media platforms of judgments of high public interest. So in this case, uh, there was court documents, court bail decisions from the high court about him were uploaded pretty quickly. So if you did want a whole lot of information, journalists did and some of the public, uh, you could actually get it there from the source as well. I guess one of the things that I was feeling on Friday was how much of a backlash Against because his attack was has been associated with 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 ISIS with a Islamic extremist group. Um, how much backlash there might be against the Muslim community in New Zealand? I have I avoided going and listening to um, talk radio stations for my own mental health, but you might have done that for your job, Colin. Tell me what you picked up on. I did a bit, and also the specific nationality uh, of Sri Lankan was mentioned. Look, no pundit, no commentator, uh, no one trying to make a point about this uh, said it in the media. There were a few talkback callers making points about, you know, often the Muslims or the mosques and things like that, even um, some suggesting that New Zealand mosques should take responsibility for compensating um, the victims and so on. But, I mean, no no serious commentator was making points like that. Um, but former newspaper editor, former listener writer Carl Dufresne on his own blog made the point that um, News Hub, something I noted myself, actually News Hub's 6pm News, quoted uh, at least one witness who said that the man, Samsudin, was shouting Allahu Akbar in the supermarket before he was shot dead. Carl Dufresne noted no mention of this in other media coverage apart from a Reuters story citing a New Zealand Herald report that he couldn't find. And he wondered, he asked the question, were media reluctant to repeat this information for fear of amplifying any uh, anti-Muslim sentiment? Then another former newspaper editor of a similar generation, I guess, Gavin Ellis, and his weekly uh, comment that he writes online online called uh, Nightly Views, he said the same thing happened. Social media was abuzz with this claim that media were 
in quotes, uh, sucking up to the Muslim community. That was what he said was a, a common response and that the government had prohibited publication of this detail. But he makes the point, Gavin Ellis did, that reporting this expression of faith would be inflammatory without confirmation. Um, you know, there were a couple of witnesses that said it. Maybe it wasn't confirmed. Maybe that was the reason that other people didn't repeat it. And Gavin Ellis said, given the ease with which the disaffected on social media can latch onto single phrases and subvert it for their own purposes, I can understand news media's caution if that was indeed the case. And to illustrate that, um, he said a couple of his own posts on this were hijacked by people trying to make a point about the gun laws. <laughs> you know, we're saying mm. well, now is clearly not the time to make that. But look, I was surprised by something I did here. This was in uh, a comment cut out from a, a news bulletin on uh, the Magic Talk Network. But lawyer Marcus Beveridge says blaming bureaucracy isn't good enough. Most people would probably think he should have been fish bait, particularly with some of the comments he made about Kiwis and so on. The process took too long, the modification of the law took too long, and all of us would have agreed that he should have been booted out at the drop of a hat. Right. Okay. Now that comment there, he should have been, most Kiwis thought he should have been fish bait. I thought it was a surprising one from, I mean, you can't stop a pundit saying something like that, but to excise that, put it in a news bulletin, I thought that was odd. So it turns out that, from lawyer Marcus Beveridge, um, was made in an AM show interview on 3, uh, the, uh, the TV sh- uh, TV channel 3, and then they put it up online to that, that same clip in order to run an online poll, should New Zealand have got rid of this terrorist much sooner. Is our immigration system flawed was the question they asked running that clip there and I thought that's a bit odd so Marcus Beveridge is an immigration lawyer from the Auckland firm Queen City Law his own law firm was pretty pleased with this they put up a Facebook post saying in this morning's interview on the AM show Marcus was asked about this and they said never one to mince his words Marcus uh, embraced the, the legal doctrine of fish bait and put it to good use to me, that's a disturbing comment. Most Kiwis thought the guy should have been fish bait. And actually, I Googled it um, to see if there was some sort of legal use or just, just some sort of use of this term I wasn't aware of. And um, I've never heard of it before myself, but no, well, well, I'm not necessarily in touch. I kind of wish I hadn't because it turns out it, it is or can be a rather racist slang term from the southern United States. I'm ah, sure Marcus right. Beveridge didn't mean it in this context, but I mean, that's the reason why it strikes me that it wasn't a particularly classy thing for someone to say, let alone to pull out and stick in the, the news bulletins as Magic Talk did. Now, on the question of how the law should change in response to this act of terrorism, there were there are a fair number of references, as you'd expect, to the mosque attacks of 2019, and some people even talking about the Rainbow Warrior bombing. But There was another incident which I'd actually almost forgotten about myself, but which was, maybe because we've all forgotten about it, barely mentioned. Yeah, yeah, one journalist picked up on this. So this was an incident that I guess isn't in that pantheon of terrorist incidents, if we could call it that. Back in 2008, I think it was, uh, the case of Asha Abdila, she was uh, entered New Zealand as a refugee from uh, Somalia. She hijacked a small Air New Zealand plane right. from Blenheim. Yeah, uh, pilots were injured in this. That was a, it was a bit very very serious. Police had to storm the aircraft. She got a full nine year jail term for that, and is now still in 
uh, a mental health facility secluded in Porirua. Now, I only knew this because just last month, uh, Jehan Kasanada, um, who I think we mentioned last week, um, in a piece for Stuff, he wrote all about her, saying, look, uh, she has also, I mean, this is a question with Samsudin as well, whether his mental health was ever assessed properly uh, when he, he started uh, exhibiting uh, problematic um, tendencies and was becoming hard to handle in custody. Same thing with her. Um, so Jahan was the person, was the reason this came to mind was that he'd written about her plight, um, you know, living in seclusion in Porirua, uh, still now, what, how many years is it, 13 years on from that incident. So it struck me as interesting. There were a lot of parallels with this particular situation, but um, apart from Jahan Kasanada, just went unmentioned in the media this past week. Now, one of the interesting things is, and I don't know if you were talking to me about this or I heard you talking to somebody else about this, but Patrick Gow. TV journalist has been running a documentary called, I think it's called On Hate, is it Patrick Gower on Hate, Mm -hmm. where he acknowledges perhaps um, his own prejudice against Muslim people and I guess re-evaluating that in light of what happened in Christchurch in 2019. And this was broadcast... Just a few days before the Lynn Mall attack. Just before, in fact, we were, it was the night before we last spoke last week. I was going to mention it then, but I didn't. But you know, it makes the timing, um, you know, kind of opposite, I suppose. But it wasn't so much Patrick acknowledging that kind of prejudice. What he was acknowledging was a bit of a blind spot about white supremacy. So as well as you know, the authorities being accused of looking the wrong, wrong way, perhaps being sidetracked by the possibility of you know so-called Islamic extremism or however you want to term it, that they missed white supremacy and the far-right threat in New Zealand and, and you know, whatever uh, gave rise to what happened on March 15th, 2019. What, so, did you, what did you make of that program? Well, he spent a bit much time on that because he'd already done this. He'd done a big mea culpa about not taking seriously the likes of Lauren Southern and Stephen Mollen, you know, the far-right extremists that came here on tour. He did an interview where he thinks they got a better of him. He's already acknowledged all that stuff. But I thought the spin-off uh, website, they just put out a tweet about the documentary, which I thought, you know, summed it up somehow. He said, the March 15 documentary, which was what they called it because it was heavily about Uh, March 15th, 2019, was both a tribute to those lost and a warning about the risks New Zealand still faces. So I thought it really did a good job of the first thing. Um, The stories were really moving, even though some of them, you know, we might have heard before and a lot of other media coverage, really well put together by the producer Justin Hawkes and by Patrick Gower. Um, Very, very watchable and moving. But the the second part about the risks New Zealand still face, the rise of the far right, that wasn't quite so so well dealt with. the show asked questions like, should we have seen it coming? Can we stop this hate? Are some of us more complicit than we'd like to believe? But it didn't really go deep enough into answering those. This is this has been a little bit, um, uh, what's the word? I can't think of it right now. But there is a word that has attracted my attention. Juvenile, I think, is the word I'm looking for. This is um, Tova O'Brien's description of David Seymour. You're trying not to say cockwomble, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's because I wanted to hear you say it first. I'll say Colin. it for you. Yes, right. well, it's it's in the public domain. So we'll exactly to David Seymour <laughs> on Monday. Tweeted out an image of the priority access codes which allow Māori and Pacific people to get a, a vaccine at Fano Ora locations um, without needing to book ahead. He, his tweet said, good news if you're worried about vaccination. No longer you don't need to wait. Use this access code. So that's been in the news a lot. Among all the critical responses, one from News Hub's political editor, Tova O'Brien, She tweeted, uh, based on his actions today, I have written a five-word opinion piece. David Seymour is a cockwomble. Right. 
Well, that's um, that's kind of cutting analysis. Well, the question was how rude it really was. A lot of people, it's a relatively recent British insult. People use it on television. It's got a rude word. You're going to tell me it's not rude? Well, it, it is, it's an insult that you know you hear on British television and so on. It's not right up there with the most insulting or offensive words. But the thing is, it's an insult. So the question is really, uh, there has been debated, is it appropriate for a senior journalist, a political editor, to just gratuitously insult a political party leader like this? I would say... No. Um, people loved it when Tover O'Brien ripped into Jamie Lee Ross, who was a political party leader, uh, for you know his political opportunism, his COVID yes. misinformation last year. They loved that. But this year, this was just an insult, just a blurt. She didn't really back it up, unless I missed it, with any kind of reporting or commentary to really reinforce why she thought um, he was deserving of those insults. Um, and uh, yeah, I think... Part of the point of this is that if a politician had hit out at a journalist like this, they would then hit back at the politician and say, you're losing it. In fact, can I play you a little bit of audio um, if we've got time? Of course we've got time. This is a short one. So Don Brash, 2011 election, being doorstepped by Patrick Gower and Tova O'Brien's oh, predecessor. Oh, Yep, is, is political editor. And uh, a rather rotated Don Brash told him this. You're, you're a deceitful bastard, quite frankly. And I don't want to talk to you anymore. Okay. What about the retirement age? Uh, uh, the, sorry, I'm not Ra- talking. The raising, anymore. the raising. Okay, so that's that's Patty and Don. Yeah, you're a yeah. deceitful bastard, Doctor. So, you know, the media have control in this situation. The 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 politician loses their cool slightly. That will be touted as evidence that they've lost it, can't control their emotions, um, and they should as politicians. So I think when it's flipped around a bit, politicians right. could easily say to a political editor, you know, yeah. that's not classic. So, so all this thing can be, this stuff can be quite entertaining. Whether it actually tells me much more about anything, I don't know, apart from the people involved. Can you give me an example, um, Colin, as we head towards the news, <laughs> of some good journalism that's caught your attention recently? Yeah, a couple of bits I'd urge people to go away and read. Matt Nippett uh, for the Weekend Herald um, wrote a background on the rise of the Delta variant. A month ago, suddenly became the only strain in MIQ. Really interesting. Stuff's Charlie Mitchell wrote a great piece uh, called Three Weeks Inside the Rabbit Hole of Dangerous Misinformation, which is also available as a long-read podcast. Uh, the went through... All the um, odd fears and anxieties that people have uh, with COVID misinformation, and it really helps you to misunderstand or to understand rather how people latch on to some of these beliefs. We've got some examples there. Yeah. Some sonic examples. Oh, one, one sonic one in example. Particular. This is from the podcast. This is, I think, Charlie himself. Uh, about uh, people who have this anxiety about vaccine shedding, the odd belief that people could get sick after being around vaccinated people. Why wouldn't you be fearful? If you thought that vaccines killed people and you lived in a country where millions of people were voluntarily being vaccinated, fear would be a rational response. Simply posting about it online would seem insufficient. Greater action would be necessary. That is where the frustration comes in. Despite the strong growth and membership of these groups, they've had little impact outside of their digital bubbles, which causes obvious distress. So that was Charlie Mitchell yep, from Stuff? Indeed, and that's really interesting because, like, for example, when protests get called and one person turns up and they get, you can see it in the postings that he has trawled through, people get really anxious and un- can't understand why people don't share their beliefs, why there aren't huge crowds in the streets believing the same thing they do. And, uh, yeah, it, it does help explain the sort of state of mind people get into. Really interesting read. Very briefly, Colin, one other thing, because I noticed this too, Dylan Cleaver, sports 
um, sports journalist. He's on a new adventure. Yes. Got, I've given you 45 seconds for this one. Yeah, Dylan Cleaver, former editor-at-large of sport at The Herald. He has left The Herald and written a really interesting piece about why some of the shortcomings of mainstream sports media. He has created a Substack subscriber newsletter called The Bounce. And uh, today's edition, The Art of Watching Bad Cricket, about how rotten the current series with Bangladesh is. So you might enjoy reading rotten? that Rotten? Mm-hmm. Rotten? He says, playing cricket on rolled oats is harder than it looks. You'll know what that means, I well, don't. Well, look, look, I can give people an update. New Zealand's playing the fourth one day right now. Uh, Bangladesh are up 2-1. It's been a great series, I reckon. New Zealand doing it tough, though, 58 for 5 after 13 overs. So there you go.